I'm James Lee Hernandez. And I'm Brian Lazarte. You're listening to Cinepod. The cinematography podcast. Bam. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Hey, Ilya. (laughs) Jinx. How's it going? It's going pretty well. It's another exciting episode of the Cinematography Podcast. Who do we have on? We have the creative team behind the big con, and you interviewed them. Who are they? It's James Lee Hernandez and Brian Lazarte. You'd interviewed them a couple years ago for McMillions, the documentary series that ran on HBO. And I was interviewing them, uh, as you said, for The Big Con, which is on Apple TV Plus, currently streaming. Really cool documentary series. These guys have a a real touch for finding a real life story that almost feels like a Coen Brothers movie. Mm. You know, I did interview them, but that was pre-pandemic. And so basically since shaving my head and getting a mohawk and carrying a trident everywhere and, you know, being <laughs> wearing war paint and, you know, that's like another life. I don't even remember those. those days I just I just well. go for the baseball bat with a couple of nails through it. Escape <laughs> real from simple. New York style. Yeah. yeah escape yeah. from New York, of course. Yeah. Not Walking Dead style. Not not Lucille. No, for sure. Yeah, because that was like barbed wire, not nails. Yeah, someone's someone would correct me if I. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah, we'll we'll get into the interview. I, we never really set out when we started this to talk to documentarians, and I feel like we've talked to quite a few, and they always have an interesting take on the work, you know, because regular narrative film is kind of codified. I mean, there's any number of ways to do it, I guess, but it's like the way it's scheduled, the way it's shot, it's all generally kind of pro forma, but documentary can just be, it's, it's such an imaginative, creative landscape to play in. And these guys are doing work. I don't think anyone else is doing work exactly like this. The only thing I could compare it to, and I say this in the interview is Errol Morris's early films like Gates of Heaven. Mm. And, you know, you're absolutely right. Documentaries. And I'm really, really pleased and proud that we've had so many great documentarians on the show to talk about their work. The rules are kind of unwritten. Never before have so many different disciplines all kind of fed into the cinemagraphia of what it is that you're seeing, you know, how everything plays together and editing, of course, a big part of that. But, you know, with the documentary or the unscripted narrative that's intrinsic to documentary, you never know what you're going to get. You might get animation, you might get file footage, you might get, you know, found footage, you might get any number of like computer graphics, all of the reenactments, which which these these guys do lots of reenactments in their work. Recrees, as they call them in the business. That's right. Uh, But you've uh, done some recrees for information discovery, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Yeah. For uh, investigation discovery, I think you mean. Oh, excuse me. Excuse me. You're right. Investigation discovery. Yes. I uh, I shot a lot of reenactments for a show called Murder Among Friends. (laughs) Because, you know, if you're going to commit murder. (laughs) That's the whole premise. It's people who killed their friends. That's the whole show. Spoiler alert. Not that close, these friends. More more frenemies than, than actual friends. <laughs> yeah, I directed a bunch of reenactments that were shot uh, by an amazing DP, Davey Robertson, who I've threatened to bring on the show before. He's uh, Let's do I, it. No, I've never not. worked with anyone who worked so 
goddamn fast is Davy. Holy wow. crap. Yeah. Ordinarily, when you set up a scene, you know, it's like, okay, well, uh, you know, that's the blocking and whatever. You know, let me know when you're there. I'm going to go to Crafty and uh, take a nap. He's and, already shot. <laughs> no, like that that's what happened. I would take like two steps towards Crafty and they'd be like, uh, Davey's calling for you on the set. And it would look awesome. Like it, it wasn't it wasn't that he was phoning it in. This guy didn't phone it in. He did great work. He had one of those like time turners, like out of like what Harry Potter. <laughs> he was somehow able to like, you know, speed up the harvest. You know, this guy he could... and his his crew, man, they were just so dialed in. Oh, and uh, right. I'm and excited. The, the, I want I mean, to talk like, to some Davey. of that footage is on my reel. Like I, I'm, I'm really, yeah. I'll, I'll talk to, I'll reach out to Davey. Let's I've talked to him before. He's also a big uh, horror fan, and he's made some H.P. Lovecraft movies. But let's oh. go ahead and dive into our close focus, which is that there was kind of a, I'm going to say, kind of an upset uh, recently at the Upfronts. Um, and, and let's define the Upfronts for for our listeners who may not be familiar with that term. Well, it's when the networks and now streamers are included in that basically trot out their new product to entice advertisers. And over the years, it's become more and more of like a dog and pony show, honestly, where now you've got Kevin Feige and Samuel L. Jackson and all kinds of, you know, Stevie Wonder, all kinds of people doing a doing a little dance for you to try and get advertising dollars. But this year was especially interesting because this is a we might be really looking back on this year as the year that streaming kind of almost went in the direction of commercial television in that a lot of the streamers, the big ones, are rolling out an advertisement supported tier. And when I say all of them, it's like Netflix, who has never had advertisement, uh, Disney Plus. There, there's a bunch on here. Uh, there's an article in Variety that was uh, written by Tyler. I hope I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. Tyler Aquilina. And they're kind of breaking down, like, what percentage of people are streaming now. Like, you know, linear television, as, as it's called, still holds sway. 70%. That's a lot. But yeah. the, the fact that streaming now accounts for a third of yeah. all, oh, that's crazy. And the money in advertising is huge. It is billions and billions and billions. I'm starting to sound like Carl Sagan now with all these billions. But it's billions of dollars. It's, it is. It's huge, huge money. And... All these streaming services, they want, you know, I think they've realized there's only so many customers you can chase. There's only so many people who can subscribe to your service. But advertising, oh, advertising, that's another way to to bring money in. And there's often kind of the third path, which is like a less expensive streaming experience that is ad supported. And, you know, like Hulu has had that and Amazon has had that. Well, actually, Amazon has just had ad supported movies for a while. Or and, and TV shows uh, on Amazon Prime. Netflix is kind of a new one. I mean, like the list here in this article is Disney Plus, Hulu, Netflix, Amazon, Tubi, which Tubi is already ad supported. Uh, HBO Max is going to uh, really I can't imagine HBO because HBO has been like, you know, that's where you why you paid the money just to not have those commercials. Yeah. So now it's going to be 15 a month to not have commercials, nine ninety nine a month with commercials. Oh, I uh, see. So they made it cheaper. OK, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. what they're doing, you know, it's kind of smart. Like, yeah, when uh, a lot of us, I think, are starting to balk at how many streaming, <laughs> how many streaming services, services there are <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that we're subscribed to, you know, and, and there are ones like Peacock and Paramount Plus that always had some degree of that and uh youtube is the opposite they've been uh you know free with only ads since they existed and there is a youtube tv there is like there are paid tiers of youtube they tried youtube red a few years ago and that did not make the cut on 
Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I think that we can all look forward to our beloved streaming services more and more just looking like regular old television. <laughs> and we're not on a DVR, so we can't like, uh, you know, cash this stuff and skip the commercials anymore. Someone's going to figure out how to do that. It's really interesting. Maybe commercial terrestrial linear television is going to make a big comeback. You know, just wait and see. Maybe. I somehow doubt it. And it's it's such a cost thing. Let, but, let me uh, just throw this out there. Commercial streaming television could be sending data, not just pictures. So they literally could be just like beaming, downloading content that your box was constantly catching. And then you could watch it and skip the commercials. Now, it could do that. They, they don't do that. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I mean, there's a lot that they can, all of these people can do. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it'll be interesting to see how the... Uh, how this washes out like if we get to a point where having the commercial free version of your favorite streaming service prices you out uh would i pay less for netflix and put up with a commercial here and there like the ones on amazon prime and hulu are not onerous Mm. you know i i I think i'd be okay with that i think it might depend on whether or not your show's being interrupted in the middle i think that non-skipping middle inter mid-roll commercials might be the most egregious the pre-rolls the post-rolls i think that those are less annoying to the the average consumer but those ones that appear just right in the middle at the the climax yeah those are those are the worst and you bring up a really interesting point by the way that i had not thought of which is that like network television like an hour-long series is broken out into i believe five acts in general and they're built around where the commercial breaks are going to land but if you're watching, say, Ozark, which our previous guest shoots, Ozark is not designed, is not built. There are not breaks for commercials. So it would just be an interruption unless they did, you know, like Hulu. Generally, it's like at the beginning and at the end. Sometimes you might get a middle one. But like we've all had the experience where you're watching a YouTube video and it just feels arbitrary where the commercials like, you know, you're you're in the middle. You're just you just want to watch the goddamn corridor crew video. And uh, not that this <laughs> happened to me yesterday, but, you know, but just it totally like did in a seemingly random place because they don't they're not like building it around where the commercials are. I don't believe uh, it's just like, boom, I got to watch this stupid Airbnb commercial with the creepy music that I keep seeing on YouTube all the time. I don't know if everyone's getting that. No, I'm just getting, uh, you know, mayoral race for Los Angeles. Ooh, yeah, I'm done with those. Now, there's this one Airbnb commercial that they keep running and it has the creepiest music. And I'm like, this got through the focus group. Like mm. nobody said, hey, what if you didn't have music that that sounded like Leatherface was at my Airbnb? <laughs> anyway. Well, 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 here's the thing. They're, they're calling, at least here's the latest nickname. You know, there's traditional linear television. That's what we're all used to. The, you know, the cable networks and the broadcast. That's old school. That's, that's, li- that's linear. Now yeah. they're calling streaming television CTV. And I what was, does that stand for? It stands for connected television. So connected television, this is like this. You've got a smart TV, which a lot of people do. You have a remote and now you can, you know, plug in your Ethernet cable or hook up to your Wi-Fi and voila, here's all these new apps and channels and things that you can get. So CTV revenue. And, you know, the television manufacturers, they're also talking about adding advertising, not just the, you know, the various apps and the streaming services, but the actual television set themselves are talking about intelligently inserting their own commercials over sort of standard terrestrial television or even on top of streaming programs. So there's a whole other level of stuff that's that's being bandied about right now, which is uh, I don't know how that's going to end up. But, you know, one of the TV manufacturers got in big trouble a few years ago and uh, had to apologize and pay out some money because they were actually recording 
every single frame that went across that television set and sending the data back to the manufacturer's databases so they could then better market to those customers with additional ads. But of course, that became like a whole privacy thing. It was like it was identifying not just what came through streaming services or or broadcast, it was identifying every DVD and thing that was played, including sending screenshots, which is like, and people don't don't really talk about it very much, but it was Vizio. You can Google this. Vizio got in in big trouble for this. So every DVD, every DVD, it was constantly like, supposedly they've now forced firmware as, As a loyal Netflix DVD subscriber, that would get you in real trouble. Well, not really. I, I'm, a, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty open book. People are going to be like, you watch that crap? Okay, great. <laughs> so, anyway, so Ben, hey, let's get to the interview. Let's do it. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So I'm here talking with James Lee Hernandez and Brian Lazarte, the co-directors of The Big Con, which is on Apple TV Plus right now. You should you should go check it out right now. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks yeah. for having us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us here. <laughs> Although you say right now to go check it out, but you should at least listen to this podcast and then go... Uh, either way. Okay. Whichever works. <laughs> there you go. Pause, <laughs> pause this, go watch it, and then come back. Yeah. So, um, first up, you know, we've talked to a lot of directors on the show over the years, but I don't know that we've talked to co-directors and it's a skill that I find deeply mysterious as someone who has directed myself, how you go about splitting up that job and how you make sure that, you know, if one director wants to do one thing, it's not stepping on the other person's toes or whatever. How do you go about creating, cause this isn't the first project of this scope and scale that you've done together as co-directors. How do you go about making co-directing work? This is James. Uh, the way that we go about making that work is uh, mainly just fist fights. But um, outside of that, then it's a lot of Rochambeau. Uh, <laughs> now, the, the way we do it is you know, with McMillions and the same thing with the Big Con. There are these huge sprawling stories. And it really helps to have an institutional knowledge of all of it. It helps to have somebody else there that has that same amount of knowledge. So we just look at it almost like it's a writer's room. We tackle the whole thing together and are very collaborative about how we go about it. We're very lucky to have a great team that we work with here at Fund Meter and everyone else is involved. And it really comes down to the best idea wins. And everybody sort of knows <laughs> what the best idea is going to be. And we just don't have an ego about it and aren't precious and, and just try to make it the best we can. Uh, for our listeners who haven't seen the big con, give us the pitch. What's the pitch? Because it's, it's such a colorful, weird ass story with so many twists. Well, the big con is like, if you imagine a real life Saul Goodman story, it's about this larger than life Mm. attorney based out of Eastern Kentucky who pulled off the largest social security fraud scam in history, over $550 million. He had judges on his payroll. He had doctors on his payroll uh, and he got away with it for over 10 years. And once he finally got busted in true Hollywood fashion, he goes on the run. And it's just, it's, it's a wild story. There's a lot of surprises. It's comical, but equally tragic. Well, yeah, certain tragic for, uh, for many of the people in it. And it's something that's got, there's a lot of great tape to go through that you guys have, like a lot of great archives, but also you guys created some interesting reenactments, uh, if you will. Before we even talk about doing the reenactments themselves, when you're tackling a documentary project, there's sort of that language of documentary, which is 
interview archive reenactments and you know there's more than that but those are like the main things and reenactments can take any form or shape but also it's completely legitimate not to use reenactments so what was the discussion if there was a discussion about how and when to use these various pieces of uh, film language to, to create the story the way that we go about that stuff is we look at the story as a whole, and then we start to do research and see what footage exists, what archival exists, what access we can get to characters. But we very much quickly get to a point where we start learning about these amazing stories, but there isn't footage of it. It's not like they started, unfortunately, recording everything that happened in Eric C. Kahn's law office or everything that happened in the social security office. But the stories are so rich, the storytellers are so good, and it's so important to the overall thing that we want to put you there in the moment. And so that's when we really start to get into the world of recreation, and we map out the entire series first. We literally cut the entire four-part doc. We put storyboards in places where Recre is going to be. And then in the midst of doing a four-part documentary series, we stop down and go make a basically a feature film for, for uh, a few months. And then we come back and put all that together. Is there ever a discussion of like, what if we were to tell the story without them? Or is it just driven by whatever the story is and whatever the background info, you know, background footage you have is? No, the, this is Brian. Sorry, I missed it the first time. <laughs> <laughs> you failed, but, uh, Brian. I did fail. I failed out of the gate. Um, <laughs> the, the intention for the Big Con was always to utilize recreations to help tell the story. And similarly, when we were developing McMillions and we took McMillions out, that was the idea from the get-go. This art form of documentary filmmaking and utilizing recreations in, in documentary filmmaking has felt like it's continued to be elevated over the recent years. And it's a style and format that really has resonated with us. I think we, James and I both approach things so cinematically and we think about it like a feature film or even though we're in the documentary world, like the way that we envision some of these key stories, we like to include everything. We like to include the archival. We like to include great beauty shots and, and visuals to take you there or just stay on an interview for a long period of time. But some of these stories just warranted and need to help transport you to that moment. Now, both of your series, uh, McMillions and this, have, I would say, uh, they're not the same tone, but they have a similar tone in that there's, you know, they're true crime stories and there's a real uh, sense of humor about them. Like there's a, a real wit in the way that, that uh, the two of you are putting the stories together. I guess this is a chicken and egg question. Are you looking for stories? Are you turned on by stories where there's like kind of a central crazy irony like both of these stories have? You know, they're both stories of, of big scams and of kind of shall we say colorful people getting away with a lot of a lot of stuff are those the stories that are turning you on and how much i guess the real question is like how much tone are you consciously imbuing the projects with well this is james here again and i've got the answer uh for us with mcmillions you look at the story and as we started to meet the people that were part of it it just had that little thread of, of comedy to it. It felt like when we first pitched this HBO, uh, McMillions was like, okay, this is a true crime doc. It spans all these years. All these people got arrested uh, and it's going to be funny. And that was a really hard thing for them to wrap their heads around. And the only example we had, because when they asked like, what doc is it like? 
it's not like a doc. It's like a Coen Brothers movie. That was the only thing that we could really say. And with the big con, we were really fortunate in finding the story. And, and really, underneath everything, the big con is a very serious problem. It shows a very serious problem with Social Security. It shows a very serious problem we have within our government and a massive flaw that needs to be fixed. But if we just sat here and tried to explain to you how Social Security works, you'd fall asleep and uh, or uh, pass out from boredom halfway through. So to find the character like Eric Kahn and, and Peter King, who we worked with on McMillions and is an executive producer on The Big Con, he brought us the story. And it just the idea that there is this crazy attorney that stole half a billion dollars and would gallivant around the world and live larger than life and all of that. And then also be able to say something very serious about this humanitarian crisis that's happening in his area with the people that lost their benefits. That, you know, that that balance is really what we look for. We look for that left to center, stranger than fiction, comedic way to kind of lure you into something serious and then start to gradually get into the serious portion of, of why this all exists. Yeah, like I, I kind of find myself asking, like, is there a serious version of, of this story? Because it's just so outlandish and crazy and you've got the guy, you know, hanging out with porn stars and stuff. And it's just like, no matter how you slice it. And when you talk about McMillions, I will tell you that when I saw it, it reminded me a little bit of uh, Errol Morris's Gates of Heaven. Like mm. th there was some something about the people in that, something about the way you two chose to reveal character with people kind of reminded me a little bit of that. Now, like who are like in the documentary world, who are your heroes? Who Where's your true north? Oh, boy. I mean, there's so many phenomenal documentary filmmakers out there. I, I don't know if we necessarily have said like, hey, this is the documentary filmmaker we want to aspire to become <laughs> honestly, like fell into documentary by accident, personally, uh, wanted to make scripted projects and was an editor for many years. And early in my career, I had cut something and someone was looking for an editor and was saying, Hey, uh, I know someone who can help you cut your documentary and was just always excited by story. And it just, it felt, it was such a freeing way of telling story. And this was, you know, almost 16, 17 years ago when pre-Netflix and better budgets for, for documentary projects. And then probably the most recent film that really just moved me was actually Won't You Be My Neighbor. Uh, mm. Oh, yeah, that's a great film. And I think just the, the power of that film, I, like I cried like 20 times <laughs> in that movie. And I was, I, I was actually speaking with the editor about it. And we got into this long discussion about how there's not really anything sad in the movie, but yet I was so emotionally moved. And it really struck me that one of the things that made it so powerful was the kindness of Fred Rogers. And that kindness can be more powerful than sadness in moving an audience. And it was something that really kind of like struck me in a way that I hadn't really thought about storytelling and the power of cinema. and. Not uh, to answer your question about like we don't really we haven't really thought about it like that. I think we have a great deal of respect for a lot of seasoned documentary filmmakers, Steve James, Hoop Dreams, you know, early on, Stevie, phenomenal filmmaker, Ken Burns. I mean, this genius, you know, Davis Guggenheim, who had a pleasure of working with also a few years ago, and Morgan Neville, of course. And I think it just there, there's just so many voices out there that are telling great stories and we feel honored and privileged to be in a position that people are 
into our take. <laughs> and because, you know, we are approaching it from a standpoint of how can we do this a little bit differently? How can we bring a sense of humor and levity to a story that has a lot of moral undertones to it as well? No, that's really interesting. Well, and I feel like the last several years have kind of freed documentary up in an interesting way to be more like narrative films in so many ways, using so many of the techniques, the kinds of techniques that that uh, you two use as well. Also, let's let's talk about sort of uh, you know the 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 longer length. Were there ever times where you were conceiving these things as standalone movies, or was the idea always to make them uh, longer form? <laughs> this I'm so glad I get to answer this question. All right. Uh, is it a, is it a hack question? Does everyone ask you that question? No. No, actually, this is literally the battle that Brian and I have all the time. Brian always thinks everything should be a movie, and I always think it should be multi-part. And we mm-hmm. have this. Uh, <laughs> whenever anybody mm-hmm. pitches us an idea, there's the, this conversation in, invariably does happen. But we're really fortunate in the time that we are. I mean, one, not every story calls for doing a series. Uh, we've all seen series that probably shouldn't have been a series, and I'm sure there are people for both McMillions and the Big Con that are like, "No, nah, this could have been like 90 minutes." But for what we want to do, um, and for how you have to understand the story, and more than anything, the motivations. Like what this allows us to do is we have to dive deeper into the psyche and motivations of how and why people make decisions to get themselves in the places that they are. And in 90 minutes to two hours, you can't really do that. You just got to hit the hot point facts and that's the end of it. But with this, we have the time to understand why Eric Seacon's relationship with his mother is what leads him to having so many wives and gallivanting around the world. You know, the fact that Sarah and Jennifer, who are the whistleblowers in this whole thing, and you know, their motivations on why they stood up to the Social Security Administration only for the sake of doing what's right, not just because they thought it was going to impact them financially positively. Like they actually were worse off by standing up for themselves. And so the, to be able to have that time is something that we've just have been very fortunate. Like when we first pitched McMillions, there was maybe as far as popular doc series, it was making a murderer was huge. The jinx wild, wild country, but usually it really wasn't done. And we were one of the first series that HBO really dove into and greenlit from scratch. And again, not every story requires it, but we like to be able to take the time to dive in to let the characters be interesting, let them be funny, and and also then be on this emotional roller coaster with them when things get very serious. The the number of characters also plays a huge role in making that decision because if you only have a, a few key storytellers for your project, for your movie, it services probably a 90-minute movie a little bit more. But when you have, like in our case with the Big Con, there's not only so many characters, but they're, they live in different worlds and they have their unique points of view. And when you really take the time to understand their point of view and what they were going through, and then you flip it and you get to understand someone else's point of view that lives in a completely different part of that story, you get to piece it together in your head in a way that just it feels like it's richer storytelling at least in our opinion and for the big con it's very much you know it's a it's a four-hour documentary it takes you on a journey um each episode has a different feel has a different vibe especially when you get to episode three it really turns it changes and there's a really it's just it's a different way of storytelling and consuming we're even doing a companion podcast to the documentary series because we felt like 
in our case with the big con, there was just so much story we couldn't fit into the documentary series. And I'm ashamed to say I didn't know that there was a podcast and now I'm going to subscribe to it. I think that podcasting has kind of blown out the documentary form in, in, in another way. There's so many amazing documentary podcasts out there. I can't wait to hear that. Um, let's talk a little bit about cinematography. And your DP on McMillions and this uh, was Jeff Dolan, correct? Correct. So how do you go about working with him? Is he doing all the interviews and all the reenactments? How, how do you split it up? Some of the documentary filmmakers we've talked to, they'll have a different person do the reenactments or they'll have a different person do the interviews. Uh, we're really, really lucky to be able to work with Jeff Dolan. I mean, we've had other people like in McMillions, a great guy by the name of Kenny Soft helped us out. We also had uh, Rod Hassler yeah, also helped us. But the main person behind all of it is Jeff. And on, on the big con, Jeff did every single thing. And oh, really? Yes. Uh, so Jeff is a very, very rare talent. Usually you have somebody that's great at verite or, or great at interviews, but they're not good at just the general cinematic feel that you need for scripted stuff for you know for the recreation piece and Jeff can do it all I mean we've been in situations where it was just the three of us Jeff and a sound person and he's throwing a camera on his shoulder and and popping off great verite shots sit down interviews look absolutely beautiful where in the big con we're going everywhere from double wide trailers to outdoor shots to literally this United States Senate <laughs> and trying to make this massive space just feel so warm and inviting. And uh, Jeff, is just, he's able to do all of that. He's got a phenomenal eye for lighting. And then we dive really deep into him with testing everything as far as lenses are concerned when we, when, before we even go in with a shoot. For this, you know, for the big con and for Apple TV+, Plus, it has to be 4K. So we couldn't use Alexa. We had to figure out, all right, well, what are we going to use? What new camera are we going to use that's really interesting? And ended up settling on the Sony Venice because it still gave that warm sensor feel that we like. And, you know, he's he's just a, a magician. Then we get out there and we're shooting the recreations and, and he's running a, a set the same, you know, I, I don't want to give him too big of an ego, but, uh, you know, Roger Deakins-ish, <laughs> uh, where he just really understands how to make things look, that give it beautiful lighting, give it beautiful depth and, a lot of times people bring a separate cinematographer for the cinematography on the recre, but with Jeff, it's plug and play. He does both of those, and it's great because he understands all of it. It all feels like it's one world because it wasn't a totally separate person that did all that. So the lighting matches. The, the Even with our production designer, we talked to her ahead of time to make sure interviews and, co and the coloring and everything is going to match what we're going to be doing for the recreations. So it all feels like one cohesive piece. He's kind of like the quiet assassin. Very quiet. <laughs> Very quiet assassin. And he's just, he's been an invaluable part of our team and, and he makes phenomenal baked goods that he brings to set every day, which is also oh, really? the most. Oh, unreal. I don't know how he finds the time, yeah. but he'll show up with like a whole thing of delicious <laughs> you just got him doodles. Any producer listening to us is gonna is gonna hire him because the dude brings baked goods to the set. Like, uh, it's it's fascinating, and he also likes to drive. So anytime we go out on interviews, he has to be the driver. It's a it, you know he's a, he's really the full package. Yeah, yeah. He's got the skills. That's yeah. for sure. 
when you're doing an interview, how do you choose? And and is this like a discussion that happens in pre-production when you're preparing it, or is it is it something that's more on the day? Uh, how do you choose like the style of the way you're going to film the interviews? Because again, I feel like we've had an explosion in just the way we approach interviews when when we see them in documentaries. It used to be kind of a stock standard guy sitting in a chair looking right off to the camera and. Probably as a filmmaker, you'd be like, okay, I had six people looking to the left of the camera, so now I got to have the other six looking to the right of the camera, whatever it is. But you guys in this film kind of mix up the styles a little bit. Like, it looks like you've chosen an interview style based on the character of the person you're interviewing them, as opposed to having a fixed style in an Errol Morrissey kind of a way where it's like everyone's on Interotron in his thing. But you got there, there's a, a wide variety. How do you approach coming up with that? Well, no, it's funny because w- when we made McMillions, we had a very specific lookbook for how to approach it. And all of our images were actually from scripted movies and how we wanted to go about lighting, how we wanted to go about composing. We were a little looser a bit looser on the big con in part because we were shooting this in, in the height of the pandemic. We hadn't really heard of that many productions happening at the time that we were going out and shooting. Most of the industry that we were being exposed to were um, shut down. And so it was like, it was the first thing that we had gone out and done. Any of our crew were like, yeah, we haven't done anything. And so there, there was a, a sense of just being cautious, but we 100% looked at it as like the character will dictate how we're going to go about shooting that interview and their environment will dictate how we're going to go about shooting that interview. Uh, we shot on, on these Leica lenses that are actually still camera lenses that have been modified. And one of the reasons we did that, I think, because they looked great for one, but we had we had these Cook lenses on McMillions that were just a pain in the ass to yeah, look around. We used the Cook S4s on McMillions, and they're so huge. The S, then we have the S7s. We the S7s for, at, for the bit. first big shoot that we yeah. did, and then the rest of it was S4s, and they're just they're beautiful, but they're gargantuan. Yeah, and we just we were like, you know, let's make our lives a little bit easier, and like these Leicas looked really nice. We just felt like we could move quicker, especially being such a small footprint when we went and did the interview portion. The more that we can just kind of get in and out and not ha- and like not have to be bogged down by that stuff. Um, yeah, we're felt- always searching for the smallest footprint that we can get up and running really quickly, but still have everything high quality. We're always trying to dial that in. So, you know, you guys said that you do extensive prep before you start, but I'm still assuming that you conduct the interviews first, kind of string that out, figure out what you need to reenact and then schedule the reenactments after that. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Sorry. There's literally a peacock right outside my window uh, (laughs) and it is screeching. I don't know if you you hear it. It's on my next door neighbor's roof. That's Um, hilarious. So for myself, but also for people who haven't gone through this process before, what's the time offset? How long do you give yourselves to string out enough to know what you're going to need reenactments for? And then talk about like how long you had to do all the reenactments. I mean, we've heard people do it different ways, but for us, we divide our edit weeks based on how we put together a schedule. And we say, okay, the first half of the edit weeks are all about story building in the documentary sense. And we'll have black holes, we'll have title cards, and then we'll just really map and we'll do it with music, temp music, whatever we need to, to kind of start to establish what the tone and the pace and the vibe of that episode and that story is going to be. And then 
once we get closer to the finish of that sort of like first and like rough cut phase, then we start getting in with a storyboard artist. And it's kind of our first stage for James and I to really think about how to be efficient with our shots and creatively, what do we want to see in this moment? Some things are more obvious than others, but we start to really map out what that's going to look and feel like. And then we'll actually put it into a final draft script format so that that can be translated essentially to all department heads. You know, when you have uh, wardrobe and makeup and, you know, from a from a DP and your first AD to scheduling out how you're going to mm. do that recreation, like you really, every single scene has to be identified and numbered, especially doing it in this format, right? In this style. Like if we had just like a couple small recreations, we could probably just write it out a little bit differently. But in this case, it really helps us to maximize our, our days. And then um, we did, for both McMillions and for the Big Con, we're kind of the same schedule that we had, which was about 15 to 18 days. Oh, not bad. And, you know, they're packed. They're, they're definitely... Oh, yeah. They like, were dense. One of, sometimes Brian and I will divide and conquer on recre days. And one day our sides, somebody was like, said, is that the whole script? Like, oh, no, that's just what we're shooting today. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we do keep, we, 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 and we kept it under 12 hours. Uh, oh, yeah. Which is, you know, very key for us whenever we're, we're going out and doing these things. But yeah, I mean, and then, yeah, you got to stay humane um, and keep people happy. Uh, this may be me reading way too much into it, but since you said you bring in a storyboard artist, do you drop those boards into your edit so that you know almost to the to the half second how long you need the shots to be? I don't know about half second, but yeah, we we actually drop them in because nobody is going to understand what we're what we mean just by text over black, especially yeah. when you're dealing with networks. You know, network executives they're smart and they have great notes and all of that, but they don't know what's in our mind. So we need to show everybody the general idea of what we're going to be filming when we go out and shoot. But you got to remember, there's also the second half of our edit plan when we go about doing these things, because this is not like a commercial where you got to stop watching. You could say like, okay, it's got to fit this tiny little timeline. As soon as you come back after we film those recreations, it's not an edit by numbers situation. You don't just take that scene that we shot and just like plug it into like what that storyboard was. There's still a lot of shaping that still happens after that. And in some cases, the reason why that happens is we don't shoot exactly what our storyboard is or we run out of time and we have to come up with something quick and dirty to make sure that we can get that story beat across. Um, and sometimes it can be better than what we imagined for the, the storyboard. But the art of the documentary is just it's such a moving object that you're trying to figure out and crack to the very end. And we're always elevating the story. We're always discovering new sound bites and new story paths. And when you have those recreations, you just, you, it just changes how they feel over time. Cool. Well, um, before we wrap up, uh, do you already have your next project lined up? Are you already working on the next thing? Or are you, uh, yeah, we're uh, we're currently working on a few things. We're we're very fortunate that there are things that we're producing just through our company fund meter that we're not directing. There's a thing or two that we're directing, and we're cranking away on one of them. And uh, hopefully, it'll be out this year. Yeah. Yes, we have we have our next project. Not to be too cryptic about it or when it comes out, but we're always looking for great stories. Always and, looking. Um, if you got something great and great collaborate on the fund meter. <laughs> All right, um, I'll, I'm, I'm walking over. 
I'll see you in a minute. Um, <laughs> Sounds well, good. Uh, before we go, obviously, McMillions is on HBO Max, and the Big Con is on Apple TV+. Plus. Do you have a website or something where people can find you, interact with you, or are you on Instagram, Twitter, any, any places you'd like people to, uh, to go look to find both of you guys? Yeah, so Fun Meter, uh, our website is funmetermedia.com. You can find us on uh, Instagram, Fun Meter Official. Uh, you can find me on Instagram. I am the JLH or on Twitter. Just put in my whole name. Not a lot of James Lee Hernandez is on the planet. Brian, I think, has stuff too. I have to look mine up. That's how like uh, untech I am. Because uh, <laughs> I think yours is BD Lazarte. Oh, uh, might be. Yep, BD Lazarte. D is in Doberman. Doberman. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but I, we're, if you have something cool, hit us up there, and it just keeps you posted. We've got a lot coming around uh, the rest of the year, so we're excited for people to see this, and we've had such an awesome experience working with Apple TV Plus and Molly and Rose and Erica and Zach, Jamie, that whole team, um, Kyle on the podcasting side, and uh, we're excited to show people more of what we got. The companion podcast has also been a huge. I mean, we're actually we're still in it right now. That's why we even have mics available because we yeah, really yeah, like, yeah. Our, our audience can't see it, but you both have very slick, podcasty looking mics. Yeah. <laughs> that's actually what we googled. Yeah, uh, and then boom, here they are. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, it's we're we're deep in getting this off the ground. Each episode since the launch of the series, uh, a new podcast episode has been coming out each week and, and will so for the six weeks. But it's it's treated like a narrative. Like we the way that we handle the companion is an extension of the documentary series, but there's a narrative thread to it as well. And it doesn't retell the story that we're telling in the documentary series, but it, there's new characters that we didn't interview for the series that are here in the podcast. So we have a few different perspectives and voices to bring the story to life. And then we build off of things that we talk about in the episode. So we're really excited. It's been a, a, a lot of work. We've had an incredible team of producers that have been working with us who are also from, from Kentucky, actually. And it's it, it's different. We I don't think we we can draw a comparison to another documentary series that has sort of tackled a companion like this. And yeah, we're really proud with how it's uh, how it's been turning out. So anyone uh, listening to this, definitely check out the series, but also check out the podcast. You're, you're listening to a podcast right now, so it'll take you uh, no time at all to do that. So guys, thank you so much for coming on the show. Very excited. Really, uh, really loved your, your series and I uh, can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for having us. All right, so that was James Lee Hernandez and Brian Lazarte with Big Con. And if everybody who has Apple TV Plus, give it a shot. And I don't mean to uh, toot my own horn here too much, but I brought it to their attention. I brought it to their attention that uh, cinematographer Jeff uh, Dolan was not credited on IMDb. I actually uh, because I didn't take fast notes when the credits were rolling because uh, you know the screen comes up and tells you you can advance or whatever i didn't i didn't notice who it was and i was like i'll look it up on imdb which i always do and it wasn't on there so i actually had to like do some research like i'm in (laughs) high school to figure out who shot it and uh you know as you heard in the interview man they uh they love jeff dolan and apparently he bakes like uh baked goods after shoots and brings them to the Whoa. set the next day. And I'm like, you just sold, you just you just got that guy hired on everything. Oh my God. That's right. 
When he goes home, he's baking. That's incredible. He gets done shooting, (laughs) goes home and like makes a bunch of cookies and brings them in for the crew the next day. You know, I would expect that from some of our other guests like Kian Tran, because she does also co-run the directors of photography. Mm. But, you know, it's a, it, maybe it's this trend that I wasn't aware of, of, of you know, DP maybe. cinematographers in, in baking. And it, the show does look amazing. So uh, kudos to everyone. All right, Ben, you know what time it is. Uh, what time would that be? Time to pay the bills. We got to thank our fine sponsor of the show, Aperture, Aperture maker of LED lighting equipment. Uh, they have a new light called the LS600C, just premiered at uh, NAB a few weeks back, back in April. And uh, it is similar to their other 600 lights. They also have a 600D and a 600X. The D is just daylight. The X is both daylight and tungsten. The C is a full color RGB ww so five colors uh, red green blue they got the warm white of of tungsten and the cool white of of daylight and you can blend all of those different leds together in order to make all the colors of the rainbow and it's a really interesting looking light it's coming in at a a pretty aggressive price point of course you can get it over at hot rod cameras it's a pre-order right now it's not shipping just yet but it's a pretty exciting new light and it's totally worth uh taking a look at what is that price point if i may ask the pre-order price is $2,490. And now some people out there who are looking at Amazon and going, but look, I can get this RGB light for 30 bucks from the, you know, no name express, no name express company that, that they're, they're there. They're selling it for 30 bucks. There's a huge difference between no name express and aperture. In fact, any sort of uh, maker of quality equipment, they're going to give you way more power, way more accuracy and way more usability for professionals. And a lot of people out there, I think they're not necessarily knowing about all those different things but the ability to have your light finely tuned in both brightness and in color and then also program effects as well as power it via batteries and can communicate you know wirelessly via either apps or by industry standard uh, protocols like dmx uh, crmx and all that sort of thing so it really is an incredible light and if you're doing youtube level production professional level production corporate video level production you know, the, the Aperture 600C could fit in very nicely to all of those scenarios. Worth taking a look at. Find it over at hotradcameras.com. I was pretty impressed when uh, when I was doing that shoot a, f- a few months ago with Bill Totolo. Uh, one of his big guns that he used was a 600, 600D. Yeah, I mean, like that was, that was his big gun and uh, the end product looked amazing. Now, I mean, the end product looked amazing because Bill Totolo knows how to fucking light. But uh, it was great to see uh, Aperture Lights in, in action out there. I hope he puts that on his business card. <laughs> Bill Totola knows how to fucking light. Knows how to fucking unquote, light. Ben, ben Rock. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that's a, it's a ringing endorsement. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we got a lot, of, uh, a lot of compliments from the client on it. And uh, the, the project is up. I don't know. We could, I, we could add it in the show notes if we want. It's, uh, oh, it's, a, okay, cool. it's an industrial video for uh, Halil at UCLA. Nice. And now, short ends. So, Ben, I think it's uh, our famed short end time of the show. What is your obsession this week? So, my short end is currently on HBO Max. It's a two-part documentary, and it is called George Carlin's American Dream. And if you were a fan of George Carlin's, it's amazing. And I, I have been a lifelong fan of George Carlin's. I believe if you had never even heard of George Carlin before watching this, it will blow your mind. Uh, it was directed by Judd Apatow and Michael Bonfilio. And it's my favorite thing Judd Apatow has ever directed. It's mm. 
it's really incisive. It's really moving. It's very warts and all for people who are not, uh, you know, because George Carlin passed away in 2008. So for younger listeners, maybe haven't even heard of him. But he was a stand-up comedian who was very active starting in the 1960s. And he, again, died in 2008, made numerous TV specials. And he's one of those comedians who you still see his stuff, people passing around his memes and stuff like that to this day, because the stuff he was saying uh, especially in like maybe the last 15, 20 years of his life, is so shockingly universal that it resonates through today. But even stuff he said in the 80s, whatever. But it's interesting on many fronts because it's very personal. They have his daughter on there a lot, Kelly Carlin. She, I think she's one of the executive producers. And she talks openly about her father and mother's drug addictions and how her father was on the road so much. And, you know, her mother was kind of stuck at home and lonely and bored lot you find out about his health issues his multiple heart attacks all of that kind of stuff and then you kind of find out about and this to me is maybe one of the most interesting things about it that is what really drove him you know because he was creative but he would reinvent himself so he started as kind of a very straight-laced stand-up comic there's archival footage of him from the 60s and it's him on a show with an extraordinarily young Richard Pryor and they're kind of bantering off each other. I, I didn't realize that their friendship went back that far. And then he reinvents himself as a counterculture figure in the 60s and early 70s through the 70s. And then in, in a similar way to the Kurt Vonnegut documentary that I talked about recently, it's like, in the mid to late 70s, the culture was kind of done with the hippie culture and the counterculture. And he became sort of emblematic of that dude reinvents himself again. And he just kept doing it over and over and over again. And by the end of his life, you know, like you watch his stand up and, uh, you know, I'm, I don't mean to I'm not casting aspersions on anyone, but um, he is doing stand up comedy at a level that you just don't see. Like what he's doing is just it's brilliant writing it's brilliant wordplay and you know they interview a rogues gallery of just some amazing comedians and it's interesting to see like what stuff you know like jerry seinfeld fixes on his album a place for my stuff which is probably the most seinfeldian thing george carlin ever did you know but you know you've got Patton oswalt on there you've got bill burr it's just so good it's four hours and the other night i was like i think i'll uh, i'll watch the first part i'll see i'll see how i feel about it and maybe i'll come back the next day and i watched all four hours in a row i couldn't stop watching it it was just and it's and it's gorgeous by the way it looks amazing I got nothing to add to that. I, I loved it as well. I've, I've really I've been watching it the last couple of nights. It's been really, really great. And, and I, I will know, add one uh, thing. Uh, cinematography by Matt Bass. So congratulations, okay. Matt okay. Bass. You mentioned wordplay. I mean, George Carlin really is the comedian of semantics. Uh, and not to say that other comedians are not. But, you know, when he gets into like the very basic, but also still very humorous double entenuendes, <laughs> double entendres of the, the you can uh, prick your finger but you can't say on television, finger your prick. So, oh, yeah, no, they go, a, they go in deep yeah. on the seven dirty words you can't say on television, which I never really understood the origin of that bit. But it was like George Carlin kept getting in trouble for using bad language, but he couldn't get anyone to tell him what the words were. So that bit <laughs> comes out of him figuring out what the words that he couldn't say were. And uh, I can say them here. Who cares? But I won't. But I, I think what's great is that is you get to see the reinvention because there's 
couple of points in his career where it's like, you think it's just going to go off the rails. You think he's going to become obsolete. You think that, you know, really people aren't going to, aren't going to be interested in him anymore. But instead what happens is he goes, oh, okay, well, you, you think you're done with me? I'm going to raise my game. I'm going to figure out how to come back even stronger, yeah. even better, more relevant. And that, that to me is some of the most inspiring, best stuff. And talking about a documentary series that is made in the edit, the edit for that show is incredible. It's so it's well re- edited. It's, really it's so well yeah. graphed. The graphic design of it is just so well done. You know, I guess he wrote these little notes to himself on little scraps of paper and they use those as kind of a recurring motif through the whole thing. There, there are many like just really well put together uh, sequences. And yeah, like what you're saying, I feel like almost every comedian, even outrageously famous comedians kind of fade. Like they just, they're, they're not as relevant. Their humor isn't as cutting edge in its time. And, you know, most of those people are able to make a living throughout their life doing stand up touring or doing specials or whatever. Like I remember even towards the end, Robin Williams had a new stand up special, but George Carlin, man, his specials just came back in a way they just kept coming back edgier and edgier and angrier and angrier, you know, and, and it's like, you know, you look at a comic like Lewis Black, who is an angry comic, like his stage persona is angry. His or, whole thing is about being angry. Yeah. yeah. Or, or Eddie Pepitone, people like that. Like those guys don't hold a candle to what was coming out of Carlin to the point where I feel like sometimes it was hard to find the laugh in it, but it was like really, really cutting through. And, and again, a lot of it, just holds up he was just a a brilliant artist so definitely check that out Ilya. what is your short end this week so my short end uh is also a tv series it's actually one that i discovered during the pandemic and really enjoyed and it is back for a season two and it's called tehran and tehran is all about an israeli Mossad agent who infiltrates tehran in iran you know i'm a sucker for the spy thrillers i really really like them and this one is not so much of like you know it's a good guys versus bad guys but it feels really sort of grounded in reality, even though you get the big disclaimer up front that any similarities to people living or dead is purely coincidental. It's a really interesting show where fully formed characters and while it has some of the tropes of spy thrillers that you go, yeah, sure, okay, that's very convenient. At the same time, it's just fun. It's it's fun, but it's not fun in a funny sort of way or fun in like a James Bond sort of way. It feels like it is uh, a grounded in reality, biting, dramatic series. And the performances are spectacular. It's it's absolutely worth watching. And I, I highly recommend it. And this season, Glenn Close is in it. Like who would have thought? But Glenn Close is in the series. Have you have you seen Tehran? I haven't. And uh, wh- where is it streaming? You can stream it over on Apple TV Plus. And I have not been a, a huge proponent of Apple TV Plus, but, you know, between Tehran and Severance, uh, they're, they've really had some good stuff lately. And, uh, you know, they're, they're getting my four ninety nine a month. So Severance is really good. I, I, I still go back to uh, the Beastie Boys documentary that they uh, released. Uh, yeah, that, so that was ago. quite good, too. I, I really enjoyed that. Excellent. So I think that does us for this week. Ilya, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com, which, um, you know, we're doing more and more stuff, including uh, we're bringing back Cinnabeer this year in a, in a very oh, sweet. sort of, I know. Can you believe are we gonna it? Do a, are we going to do a live thing? You know, Alana Cody was asking me the same thing. I don't think so as of this moment, but uh, I literally just sent out the first invitations to uh, to manufacturers who help underwrite the whole thing. So we'll see. We'll see how, how it goes. I'm going to say probably not, but I don't know. It's still open. It's really only a few weeks away. So, uh, but I'll keep you posted. Cinebeer is a, one of the most incredible and best events we do. And I always hear from everyone how much fun they have at it. So yeah, I'll, uh, I'll keep you posted. 
Well, I hear that people who work in the film industry like beer. You know, <laughs> I've never heard that. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Beer, beer's slightly popular. So, but you mm. know, it's not just beer. It's, it's it's craft beer, but we also do a selection of like gourmet food, and it's a very casual networking experience where you can get demos on some of the latest technology, and we've really sort of curated only very interesting uh, manufacturers to be there. So it is definitely, in the past, it was like 300 people. It's not going to happen this way anymore, and we're going to be a mixture of indoors and outdoors. We're really going to do it right, and I really think it's going to be the best Cinnabeer ever. Well, the only way to make it the best one ever is to have a live interview, but you know. <laughs> All right. Maybe that, maybe that'll happen. We'll, we'll, we'll keep working on it. All right. So, so uh, Ben, where can people find you? You can find me. I'm still kind of reeling from this at benrock.com. Okay, great. That's where I'll find you then. Benrock. Yeah, find me at benrock.com. You can find all my social media things. Also, uh, the Facebook group needs a werewolf. Please come join, uh, pitch us a movie with a werewolf idea in it somehow. We, it, it's sort of just become a werewolf appreciation society. And the interesting thing about social media is you do something like that and, you know, I'm not saying I don't love a good werewolf movie. It was kind of a joke that got carried away. But th- there are people who come on there and they're like, uh, I, I can turn you into a wolf. Uh, DM me. And I'm like, please go away. <laughs> That's scary. Please go find the group that says, I want to be an actual real werewolf, because this isn't it. You've hit the wrong place. You're barking up the wrong tree, as it were. Wow. <laughs> that, 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 all pun intended. Howling up the wrong tree. Anyway. Hey, Ben, let's thank some people. Let's let's start off by thanking Kay Zalatrachi, who I saw this past week. And he said that uh, he thought it was funny because he heard me talk about the show, how I was going to see him. And then I actually saw him. So that was great. And he says we are going to do his interview sometime soon i don't know when yet well and just so Kays can feel like he's living in the matrix fully i may be seeing Kays this week because he's doing uh, a pickup shot for a horror thing that he made and he asked me if i could come over and help him with something and i don't want to say really what it is all i want to say is that i pitched him adding an eyeball it's very important to me like for me to make my day about going over there that an eyeball needs to be involved in the gag that we need to shoot it's just an insert shot it's like a big creepy scare moment and i want an i want an eyeball in it so case if you're listening to this and we haven't done it yet uh, i want a fucking eyeball if we have done it i hope that an eyeball was a part of what whatever it was we did <laughs> yeah because this is going to be like live tomorrow so he's totally hearing this yeah good good sure. he'll right. be listening to it while he's on amazon looking for realistic eyeball props hopefully <laughs> all right let's thank ben katz let's thank ben katz our intrepid editor in the pacific northwest we miss you ben but uh thank you so much for making us sound like not idiots yes uh not idiots is definitely the goal all right well i think that's just gonna be no we we didn't thank alana cody dude oh crap you're right we didn't thank alana cody oh my Boy, god I'm, I'm gonna hear about that so. she is like there is no cinematography podcast she's our producer she's our showrunner she's our omniscient godhead i'm gonna go ahead and just say omniscient godhead, omniscient godhead. great don't, don't build her up too high here <laughs> <laughs> anyway we wouldn't be here without her she's uh we're on like year three of a new episode every week i believe yeah all thanks to alana cody oh my god so many amazing interviews all because of alana cody uh, all right so now let's wrap it up and say hey thanks for everyone for listening and you will hear us next week like with certainty you'll hear us next week I don't know who with, but yeah. (laughs) That's right. 
This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.